0: This, this chapter, you know, we've been in it for a few weeks, and uh, we're going to be in it for a few more. Um, when you get to warnings, and we're in warnings, we're in a succession of warnings. Um, we we battle them, and warnings are warnings are weird things, and we we handle them differently. We hear them differently. If you were like me, especially when I was young, you heard a warning, and what'd you do? I just I I pretty much ignored most of them. Um, I wasn't very bright, quite foolish. Um, even the really good warnings, I did not heed. Uh, Some people respond differently. They'll hear the warning, and they become terrified by it. And they won't do anything. They just stay in their house. Others, who are much wiser, will hear the warning, heed the counsel, and then live in accordance with it. Um, We live in a time of excessive warnings. And the danger of that is that you'll hear from Christ eternal warnings, warnings of great magnitude, and you'll lump it in with all the other warnings you get from the culture. And you'll dismiss it. Joshua, a few weeks back, he got a model airplane from the Goodwill that he was going to hang in his room. But it wasn't just a model airplane. It was a remote control airplane. And it was fully functional. I mean, it was one of those fines, right? Um, and so he gets it home and he says, Dad, can you take a look at it? And we put it together and we get it working, right? Well, the instruction manual for it, half of the instruction manual was w- filled with warnings, I mean, you would think that this little 12-inch airplane, you know, could decapitate you with a single you know, movement of the propeller, the way this manual was set up. You know what? danger, danger, danger. It's a little tiny airplane, right? Um, it, we're filled with that. And so we hear a warning from Christ, and we lump it into with all the other warnings, and it, and it, it desensitizes it. Um, I mean, some of the warnings we should be desensitized to. Some are just stupid warnings. When, my, when I was younger, you know, we used to do things with our face and with our eyes, you know. And, of course, the parents would say, you know, if you do that long enough, you're going to stay like that. That was a warning, but it was a lie. It wasn't true. We tried to cross our eyes for a long time to see if it'd stick. It doesn't stay, okay? So some of the warnings are ridiculous. Others are important. When I was coaching football... Teaching young men how to actually play the game on defense, how to actually hit someone appropriately and safely. This constant drumbeat, don't put your head down, don't put your head down, don't put your head down. Why? If you do, you're going to break your neck. What happened two years ago? A kid on our football team broke his neck. Why? He hit like this. Suddenly, after that, everybody heard the teaching, don't put your head down. Why? Ryan broke his neck, right? They got it after the fact. But the warning was equally true before he broke his neck as it was after he broke his neck. Christ comes to us this morning and after saying, listen, the kingdom of heaven has come down to earth through me. I have called you into this kingdom. I have told you how to live in this kingdom. I have equipped you with my Holy Spirit to live in accordance with these kingdom teachings. He establishes this incredible premise and then he gets into Matthew 7. And he says, now I'm going to talk to you about the warnings. And they're, they're important, some severe and eternal and if you've been with us these last few weeks, you remember that he started off saying, listen, there's a broad gate and there's a narrow gate. And there are very few who find this narrow gate and this difficult path that leads to life. And there are many who enter entered this broad gate on this easy path that leads to destruction. He says, listen, not everybody has entered through the narrow gate. So he sets up this general warning. And then last week, if you were here to listen to Brother Sheets, you heard him talk about the false teachers who come into the church in sheep's clothing and they devour like wolves, like ravenous wolves. And there's, there's the potential to be misled. So Christ says, be aware. You'll know them by their fruit. Right? He says, watch out. Be wise. Listen. Discern. And then, so you get the warning of the gates and the warning of the false teachers. And then he comes right back to us. And he says, now you. This is probably the greatest warning of all. He says, you. Don't be self-deceived. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you have a peace when indeed that peace is false. See yourself in light of a true convert according to what the Bible says, not the culture or the contemporary church, which may not be aligned with what the Bible says. This, these three verses are blunt, they're radically blunt, they're almost hurtful when you first read them. Because he's talking to the church. But he is so serious about it. And this warning, coupled with other warnings, coupled with the entire Bible, is this constant, hey, this is a warning that you can't dismiss. This is not a remote control airplane that will nick your finger. This is a warning of eternal magnitude about forever and ever, heaven or hell. So, so my prayer for you this week, it's been real simple. I know, I know that it doesn't matter how well I preach this sermon. Unless the Holy Spirit reveals this to you, you will not hear And so I prayed, in fact, I want to pray again that the Holy Spirit will give you ears to hear this warning and then submit to it. Let's pray, Father, uh, show us, please show us this very difficult teaching. I pray that we would hear it in light of your son's teaching it to us and that by the Spirit we discern it correctly and that we would evaluate ourselves. In Christ's name, amen has to be one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. It captivated me the first day that I read it as a non-believer. It captivated me at seminary, and it's captivated, captivated me ever since. It's one of those passages that lingers there, and it always bounces around, and it's always at the forefront. Why? Because it's horrific. It's catastrophic. And it's glorious all at the same time. How? He preached this passage... In light of the context of the entire sermon. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I, I want to share with you very um, plainly what Christ was saying. And we're going to do that this morning. What, what was this warning exactly? So we know, we understand it. And then next week, we're going to continue with these three verses. And we're going to look at causes. We're going to look at how we diagnose it. And we're going to look at the hope we have in Christ. But we've got to spend more than just 40 minutes, 50 minutes on these verses. Because we have, you know, there are approximately, pending upon the organization, between 2 and 3 billion people who claim the name of Christ. 30, 35% or more of the world population professes Christ. And he's talking to those who claim his name. And what he says here is that many of those people who claim my name will come before me on that day of judgment, and I will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. We cannot write ourselves out of this warning. Let's read ourselves into it. And this morning, let's let's just look at what he's saying in a very linear, plain way. And then next week, we'll look at causes and and signs. And by God's grace, evaluate ourselves. Four things I want to show you this morning. A false profession. There is such a thing. The unveiling on that day of judgment that will take place. The consequence of the false profession, which is um, overwhelming. And then how you know you know. How do you know you know? Let's look at the false profession first. In verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The context, it's judgment day. Right? And so God has raised the living and the dead. He's gathered them before the throne, and the judgment is taking place. And on that day, there are many, he says, there are many, there's a group, a category of people who will be dumbfounded by the response they receive from Christ. Shocked that he says to them, many, he says to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, on that day, the Bible makes it clear. On that day, there, there are three groups. There, there are two. You have the sheep and the goats. But there are, there are three in their makeup on that day. You have those who have rejected God their entire life. They've rejected his teachings. They've rejected his son, his word. They've never, ever claimed Christ. And so they're going to come before the Lord. And they're going to fully expect to say, I don't know you. I've never known you. And to be cast out. There's another group the Bible talks about. The sheep. And those are people who have come to know God through Christ, who have come to a saving grace in Christ through the cross. And they know God, and they love God, and they they expect to hear forgiven, enter. There's an expectation of that. Then there's a third group, and they're goats who think they're sheep, and they really do. And they're going to come before Christ on that day, and they are going to try to argue their case. But they are fooled the entire time. In this third group, these will be people who have claimed the title Christian. Part of that 2.1 to 3 billion people on the planet right now that walk and say, I know Christ. I love Christ. I follow Christ. I attend church. I've entered the narrow gate. I'm on the difficult path. I expect life. They're going to be talking in the presence of God. And they will hear Jesus say, I don't know you. I've never known you. You're not one of mine. And the response will be catastrophic. When they hear him say, I never knew you, they will be shocked. It's not a hoax. I mean, this, this group that Christ is referring to, these many who will come before him, it's not like, it's not like they, they were pulled over by a police officer and they're trying to feign innocence. Oh, I, what was the speed limit? Oh, I had no idea, officer, that I was speeding. I, knowing full well they were, you know, they were going 80, 85 and a 55, right? They're not faking it. They sincerely believe that they are saved. They sincerely believe they know the Savior and they sincerely believe and expect to be let in. Christ says, I never knew you. Shocked. Dumbfounded. Now, I know some of you well enough to know that you're going to hear this and you're going to be bothered by it. Because I still hear people in our church. If I question someone's knowing Christ, I'll say, does so-and-so know Christ? Usually it's in the context of prayer. Someone's saying, Will you pray for my aunt? You know, she she has a sprained toe and she can't walk and she needs to walk. And I'll say, Do they know Christ? Because before I pray for their sprained toe, do they know Christ? And the answers usually go something like this: Oh, oh yes, well, my aunt was baptized at 12 and she's been in church all her life. And I'll say, Does she know Christ? And I say, oh, yeah, you know, she's she's served in ministries to feed the poor and she's led a Bible study. And I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does she know Christ? Oh, well, absolutely. You know, when she was very young, her parents assured her that she knew Christ and that she is saved. I said, yes, but does she know Christ? Why do you keep asking the question? Because all the answers that were given are wrong, and then we get the—you always get the the uh, the summa theologica evangelical answer. Well, yes, she knows Christ because she professed with her mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I say, yes, so did they. In fact, they did it twice. Curry, curry, Lord, Lord, and Christ said, I never knew you. This self-deception is so deep. That not only do we convince ourselves, but we convince others that they know Christ when indeed they may not know Christ. It's a grand lie, right? And it's a lie that we love. It's a lie that provides a false comfort. Because I don't want to think for a moment that my children are not saved. So what do I do? I convince myself that they're not saved. I don't want to think that my brothers or my parents or my friends or my family or you, I don't want to think that. So I convince myself by saying they were baptized this time, they go to church here, they give this amount of money, they serve in this ministry. And I come up with this great paradigm to lie to myself. Why? Because the thought of someone you know and love not being saved is unpalatable. It's hell. Right? That's, that's not a reasonable thought. And so we do all these things to convince ourselves that yes, someone's saved. Someone knows Christ. I mean, even so much as the person who hasn't professed Christ or gone to church or in years and years and years. they said, well, when they were, I think when they were six, and this happens in dialogue with funerals. If I'm going to do a funeral for someone, I think when they were six, they made a profession. I think Jesus desperately wants us to hear the danger of self-deception, self-deceived. Not the false prophet, but you or me, a goat that's put on a sheep's clothing. Right? I've snuck in and I've, and I've adorned myself with wool. And I think that I'm one of God's children. I'm not. He says, do you hear this? The false comfort we say to bring to ourselves when we say, oh, someone, yeah, they said the prayer. They were baptized. I was there. I saw it. I know they've been to church. I know they're a good person. Jesus is saying, you can do all these things and more. He's saying, you can do miracles. You can perform exorcisms. You can do many great, great works. And he says, you can do it all in my name. You can do all the stuff that I did. And still not know me. And still not have salvation. Have the saving grace that comes through me. Now, Christ... The hardest part about this teaching, and I know why it's not preached much, he's not talking about those outside the church. He's talking to the church. He's talking to everybody who claims the title Christian, every one of us. And so what we do, we say to ourselves, oh, well, he must be talking to those people. Whoever the he's talking to the people in the other church, because that church down the street, that's a bad church. So he's talking to them. No, he's talking to us. And we say to ourselves, we convince ourselves that it can't be us. Because it can't be our friends and our family members and our co-workers and our brothers and sisters that do not know him. We all know him. How is it that we're all the exception to the rule? How is that possible? How do we all know him and no one else does? If he says many will come on that day. Before you dismiss your friends... And your family members. And before you dismiss yourself. From this teaching. Saying well yeah, yeah yeah I know. I know. Christ is saying examine yourself. Test yourself. To see whether or not you're in the faith. Because the, the consequence is life or death. It's eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. It's not a small matter. Those outside the church. Never say to Jesus. Lord Lord. They called him Lord. They did things in his name. So he's talking to us. He's talking to pastors. He's talking to deacons. He's talking to small group leaders. He's talking to ministry leaders. He's talking to worship. He's talking to every single person who claims the title. I don't care how long you've claimed that title or how new you are to this faith. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's saying this is a warning for you. Why does he tell us? Because he doesn't want you or me or us to be one of the many. This is, a, this is a, 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 a petition of great love. Don't be one of the many who come before me on that day and hear me say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So what does it unveil? I mean, if this is true. I can already see some of your faces. Listen. Christ is not trying to scare you. This is not an intimidation factor. It's not intended to produce guilt. This is a sober teaching for us to evaluate ourselves. And we'll see the last point, if I ever get there, that there's assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, right? There's an assurance in this faith. So don't get all sideways on me before we get to the last point, okay? Stay with me here. And don't check out. Don't give me that look like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do the, 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 the irrelevant warning. Point number two, the unveiling. Jesus says, on that day, on that day of judgment, many will come to me thinking they know me, but I will say to them, I never knew you. Uh, Essentially, he's going to say, you're a goat, and you're all dressed up like a sheep. And I know you're not a sheep. And he's going to take the clothing, he's going to unveil it, he's going to take it off, and we're going to be standing there. Hopefully not you, hopefully not me, but people will be standing there, and they're goats. On that day, Jesus says, all the trickery, all the deception, all the foolishness will cease and the heart will be unveiled and uncovered. And it will all be made known. There will be no more hiding. No more hiding from others and no more hiding from ourselves. Because we deceive ourselves better than we deceive anyone else. What will be made known though? I mean, what will be uncovered on that day that still, that still uh, deceives us today? A few fundamental things from this passage. And I want you to see them. Number one, that orthodoxy, knowing truth, Believing truth and teaching truth does not save a man's soul. Did you notice the individuals here in this group? They correctly identify Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, they're theologically correct. And almost all the commentators agreed on this. These are people who are orthodox in their faith. They come before Jesus Christ, Son of God. They weren't heretics. They weren't blaspheming God. They come before him saying, Lord, Lord. They believe the right things. They say the right things. They have the right doctrine. And yet Christ says, you're not going to enter. Now this should cause, especially a church like ours, that strives for doctrinal purity to pause for more than a moment. One of the great dangers of an orthodox church is taking pride in their orthodoxy. Say, well, we know the truth. That church down there They're heretics. But we know the truth. And we stake our claim on truth rather than on Christ. The gospel accounts. What did the demons, they they recognized and they say, to Christ the Lord. They were orthodox. And yet what? What was was destined for them? The lake of fire. Even James says, in James chapter 2, he says, you believe that there is one God? He says, good, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. No big deal. It doesn't mean you're saved. Orthodoxy does not save a man's soul from hell. Now, to be sure, those who are saved will be orthodox. What do I mean by that? They'll know that Jesus is God. They'll know that He came in the flesh, that He lived the perfect life, that He died your death, that He rose from the dead, that He was exalted and sits at the right hand of God the Father. We will believe that. We will believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus is His Son, that He is the Savior. The person who is saved will believe these things. But just because you believe these things does not mean that you are saved. Okay? How many people, how many of you have met in your life the orthodox person? whose character doesn't line up i mean they're, they're they they be, they can be the bible teacher right they got it genesis revelation they have the systematic theology they have the biblical theology they get it all right and yet their character doesn't line up i was not too long ago invited to a men's conference and at this men's conference there was a particular keynote speaker in fact he was the guy that was going to do the three-day conference And it was a conference designed for pastors, but men in the church in general. And it was designed to teach us how to be godly men, godly husbands, godly fathers, godly pastors, godly servants. And when I got the invitation from another fellow pastor in the association, I saw the keynote speaker's name and I thought, his name sounds familiar. But I I couldn't make the connection. So, of course, with the wonders of the Internet, I got online and I typed in his name. And and then and I realized he was a, a pastor of a very prominent church in Southern Baptist circles who is known for his, uh, his ability to preach the word of God in an orthodox manner. Very orthodox man. Very well known as an orator of God's word. But that's not how I recognized his name. I recognized his name because a couple years ago he was caught ...in an adulterous affair. He had been sleeping with... ...a younger female member of his staff. And he got caught. And after he got caught... ...he confessed... ...and the church that he was pastoring at... ...was so eager... ...to keep their orthodox orator... ...of the word of God... ...they said, you're forgiven... ...and reinstated him as senior pastor. Orthodox. He wasn't a heretic. But his character did not match... ...what he was teaching... Jesus Christ is saying here as simply as he can, I do not know you simply because you know truth. These people that came before him got an A in systematic theology. And yet they were cast out of his presence. So the first thing that will be unveiled on that day is that orthodoxy does not equal salvation. The second thing I want you to notice, that these people were workers. These were workers. These people worked and served in ministry within the church. Look at their works. What did they do? They prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in his name. And they did many mighty works in his name. These were not lazy people. In fact, their works were were significant. They were grand. We'll look at that more next week. But Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. What? What? He calls them workers of lawlessness. They prophesied in His name. They cast out demons in His name. They did many mighty works in His name. They were doing the very things that He did, and yet He calls them workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they had put their faith in their works and not in Him. Their trust and their hope of salvation was in what they were doing in the name of Christ, not in Christ Himself. And this, saints, we struggle with this. We still evaluate the goodness of, of someone's actions or behaviors based upon the external act. And we still make this catastrophic mistake in our church that so-and-so is doing a good thing because it's a good thing. When in reality we see here that the very good things they were doing, Christ says, lawlessness, wickedness. He even says in another translation, depart from you workers of iniquity. Simply because something appears to be good does not mean that it's good. Now, this is nuanced, I get it, but let's grab on to this, okay? We're very good about identifying the bad works. We, 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 we jump all over that, especially when we see it in someone else, right? You, even in yourself, you, you expect a promotion at work. You do. You, you've worked hard, you earn, you've earned this, you deserve it, and your, your, your boss passes you up and gives it to someone else. So what do you do? Well, you say, all right, uh, that's the way you're going to treat me, this is how I'll treat you. I'm going, to, I'm going to fudge on my time card, or if you, if you do that, or I'm going to take extra days off, or I'm going to call in sick when I'm not really sick, and I might even take a few of these things from work. You know, the paper, it's pretty cheap, and all that other stuff. And you begin to live in a way that most people say, well, you know what, you didn't get the promotion, but it's not right what you're doing. Your actions are bad. What we don't do well is we don't discern on the good things that we see, Assuming that because the actions are what Christ did or would do or calls us to do, apart from the motivation, are good. There was a, uh, a sister in Christ years ago that I churched with that was adamant about church attendance and membership, both of which are scriptural, both of which are commanded by the Bible. Hebrews ten twenty five says, "Not forsake the gathering of the saints." But her motivation for encouraging people to join the church and become members of the church and attend the church and faithfully gather when the church gathers was not out of their love for God through Christ and the grace that He offered. This communal life that's given to us is so good, but can become so wicked if it's used for motivations other than the gospel itself. Motivation for joining or participating in church life—if you justify to justify your standing before God. To put God in your debt, to elevate yourself above others, or to make up for sins already committed, if that is why you gather, if that's why you join a church, then that work is wicked also. It's lawlessness. The motivation is key, the heart behind it, why we do what we do determines whether or not it's good or bad. And it can look the exact same. Casting out demons, performing miracles, doing many great works, all in the name of Jesus, all the same things Jesus himself did, and yet he says, You're a worker of lawlessness. He judges their works because they had put their faith in them and not in him. Now, I want you to notice something. He does not disagree with them, he doesn't say, No, you didn't. He doesn't disagree. They were indeed their works. And they did these things in the name of Christ. And they owned them. But there was no power. Paul said, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, they have a form of godliness. What was that form? Prophesying, exorcisms, great works. But they denied its power. Christ himself. The gospel itself. The grace that comes through the gospel through Christ. I mean, we... We don't have to even go very far to find an illustration of this. Judas Iscariot. Almost everybody knows this name, right? Everybody knows about Judas. He was, the one, he was one of the twelve that, that did the thing in the end that nobody wanted anybody to do. Judas Iscariot engaged in all the works of the disciples. He cast out demons in the name of Christ. He, he did many great works in the name of Christ. And yet we don't get this throughout the scriptures. The disciples going, you know, I think that Judas is of the devil. Not once. He was so good at deceiving others, and I would argue deceiving himself, that even at the Last Supper, when Christ says that one of you will deceive me, the disciples were saying, is it me, Lord? Am I the one? They didn't all go, Judas, it's Judas. They didn't know. They didn't know. In John chapter 6, after Jesus teaches about his flesh being real food and his blood being real drink and the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved to consume Christ he he said this he said does this offend you the spirit gives life the flesh counts for nothing now listen he says yet there are some of you who do not believe he's gathered here amongst the disciples this is before they left large crowd. He says, some of you do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Then Jesus said, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. For three and a half years, Judas walked with Christ and the disciples. He ate with them. He ministered with them. And the entire time, he not only deceived the disciples, but he deceived himself. He was self-deceived and, of course, we know his end. His end was destruction. How many today, how many in the visible church today, those who have gathered on this Sunday, have staked their claim on their great works, on their prophecy, on their exorcism, on their church attendance, on their baptism, on their giving or their service or their Bible reading or their prayer. They've staked their claim on some work or great movement in their life or great emotional experience in their life. And they stake it on on that rather than Christ. How many? How many? Christ is many. And I don't know what that number is. But I think it's many of the 2 to 3 billion people who claim his name. Many. These people are orthodox in their faith. They're hardworking in their faith. And I want you to notice one more thing. They're passionate. They're passionate. Another thing that all the commentators comment on. They, said, they say, Curry, Curry, Lord, Lord. And it, it, there's a zeal to it. There's a, an urgency. They're fervent in what they believe. They're passionate people. Orthodox, hardworking, and passionate people. Passion does not equal salvation either. Orthodoxy doesn't equal salvation. Works does not equal salvation. Passion. I mean, how many of you have listened to false teachers who have been passionate about what they teach? If you've been in public school, you have, right? I mean, I always thought to myself, I had some economics professors. And I remember thinking, ah, it's economics. It's called the dismal science. How can you be so passionate about it? Passion does not equal salvation. I've listened to plenty of false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, who are incredibly passionate, enthusiastic, full of zeal. And what? They've entered through the broad gate, and they're on the easy path, and their destination is destruction. I've had some people, we've had some people come into this church with great passion and great zeal only in a short period of time to stir everything up and then leave. And when they first come in, we're like, oh, so passionate, so zealous, so fervent. And, you know, some of you are thinking, yeah, too much so, too much so. I've had brothers and sisters say to me, this person loves Christ. How do you know? They're so passionate. They're zealous. In fact, we will give credence to what someone says uh, based upon how they say it. We'll give credence to someone's actions based upon how passionate they are in their actions. I've had some of you come up to me and affirm a Sunday message based upon how enthusiastically I preached it. And many of you don't even know that's one thing I constantly lift up to God ...as a grave concern. I don't ever want his sermon and the passion that comes from the preaching to be born of my flesh. Because I think this is a great sermon. Because I think this is a well-written sermon. Because I want to exalt myself. If there's any enthusiasm or any passion that comes from the word of God, it's because it's true. And because you want the word of God proclaimed and you want God and Christ himself to be exalted... An emotional person, a passionate person, is apt to weep when they pray and be moved by a passionate sermon, whether or not it's true or not. But because someone's passionate does not mean they know Christ. And so the picture that's painted here is so contrary to the contemporary church. And that's what Christ wants us to see. The picture he paints of the person, listen please, the warning is still real. The picture he paints of the person that he says, you do, I do not know you, and he casts out, they're orthodox in their faith. They work really hard, and they're passionate in what they believe. When we think of the person that Christ says, says, You are a worker of lawlessness, you know, he casts those out, workers of iniquity. I mean, what do we think of? We think of murderers, adulterers, rapists, politicians, right? Well, I had to add that one in. And we have that picture in our mind of those people. And Christ is saying, Yeah, and Orthodox, hardworking, passionate people. The very people of the contemporary church will say, This is a perfect church member, with one exception they don't know Christ. That's an unreasonable exception. There are lots of other exceptions. We'll take the person that's struggling with their understanding of truth and struggling with their service and struggling with their passion if they know Christ. That's the person you want. But all the other three, broadgate easy path, and is destruction. And so as we see here, everything's upside down. The very things that we use to evaluate people. Christ is saying maybe the very things that lead to them being self-deceived. And the more we encourage it, the worse it is, right? If I encourage you that you're saved because you know truth, then I'm a false teacher. If I lift you up because you work so hard and you serve so hard and you're in all these ministries and you're in the church and you're working and you're serving, and I encourage you that you must be saved, then I'm giving you a false assurance. Or worse yet, if I somehow assure you based upon your zeal, I'm a false teacher as well. So you say, all right, I got I got the warning. With all your passion, I got it. But is it a warning like the the airplane of Joshua's that I'm going to nick my finger, or what kind of warning? I mean, how significant is this warning? For years, I used to paint houses, and and one year they came out with the five gallon buckets, and I think I've shared this with you. They, there was this little sticker on it that had this this little child. You know, on the edge of the bucket, doing a, you know, a, a half Nelson into it, right? I mean, he's diving into it and it said, you know, in Spanish and English, warning, you know, child could drown. I'm thinking, how often has that happened, you know? I mean, you know, you look over and little Johnny's over there swimming in the bottom of the paint bucket. I mean, it just it seemed like one of those warnings that was just ridiculous, right? A ridiculous warning. This is not one of those. So if you've tuned out to this point, tune in right now. Just open your ears and say, all right. I'm going to refocus here for the next several minutes because the consequence, the third point, the consequence is catastrophic. Those who come to him, they declare to him, and it's a declaration, they declare why, they're making their argument, why they should be let in. Lord, 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 look, it's us. It's us. We prophesy we cast out demons. You don't do that every day. You don't see that every day. We did many great works. And the many great works, these are extraordinary works. We, and we did it all in your name. It's us. And then he makes a declaration back. So they make a declaration on Judgment Day. And he makes a declaration back. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, then I will declare to them. They make their declaration. And then Christ declares something right back. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the reason we're going to spend two weeks on this, and who knows, maybe after this week three, and the reason the Bible repeats it again and again, and the reason we see it both in the Old and New Testament, and the reason that Christ calls us to evaluate ourselves and test ourselves in light of this, is because these words, what he says in verse 23, the magnitude of the statement is, you can't put an adjective to it. There's no adverb to express the magnitude of what he's saying. When he says, I never knew you, depart from me, worst words uttered by God, to a man ever, ever. Knowing God and being known by God, enjoying the presence of God forever is what you were created for. In the very beginning, you were created to know him, to be known by him, and to enjoy his presence forever and ever and ever. I read to you from the 27th Psalm. David says, One thing I ask the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That's the one thing I want. Anything else you can have. I want Him. I want to know Him. Even the Apostle Paul. With all the Apostle Paul, his exorcisms, his prophecy, his great works. What does he say? Philippians chapter 3. He says, I consider everything... A loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Of knowing Christ he is my Lord. That's all that matters. That's all I want. And he continues this. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And that's not Paul New Testament teaching. It's not just David in the Psalms. When, when God was revealing his grand plan of redemption to the prophet Jeremiah, this is what he said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 24. He said, I will give them a heart. To what? To know me. I'll give the people a heart to know me. And then he says that I am their Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Saints, Christ is giving us a warning that goes back to the reason why you were created in the first place. You were created in the image of God so that you can know him with all your heart to love him and be loved by him, to enjoy and be in his presence both now and forever. That's why you were created. That's our chief end and aim. The sweet fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden, they decimated. When they sinned and it impacted all of mankind. Jesus came and said, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to take what sin broke. I'm going to cover it with my blood and I'm going to give you a way through me to know my father again, not as God, the judge, but as God, the redeemer. To know him. And not just know him, but enjoy him. And not just enjoy him from afar, but enjoy him in his presence. For Jesus to say, I never knew you, depart from me, is the worst thing that any man or any woman could ever hear. It's the worst thing. It's the opposite of how you were created. It's the opposite of your purpose. It's the opposite of your end. I mean, it's always that way, right? Anytime something that's been created is turned and used in a way that it wasn't intended, it's always bad. It's always destructive. I've given you crude examples of, you know, someone using a, uh, a, a hammer where they should be using, you know, needle nose pliers. Not, it's never good. It never looks good. Parents, what is your primary purpose? What is the mother and the father's primary purpose in the rearing of their children? Do we know? I mean, the culture tells us lots of lies, right? The culture tells us today, if not directly, then implicitly, we'll give them everything that they want. Just supply all their felt, needs, and wants. And that means mom and dad, you both got to work and the kids are in daycare and that's okay because when you get home from work at six o'clock, they can have their Xbox, PlayStation, and whatever else they're going to play. Or we think, yeah, if I can get my daughter into that school, if I can teach my son how to hit a curveball, then maybe he'll play Major League Baseball. We come up with all these purposes of being parents. But what does the Bible teach about parenting? What's, our, what's your primary purpose? We get in Proverbs, to train the child in the way they should go, so when they're old, they won't depart from it. What does that mean? To train them in the way of righteousness. Why? So they can know God. <laughs> right? I mean, what is the end of name for them? To know God. And so you share the gospel with them. You reveal their sin You talk about the hope they have in Christ, to repent and believe and follow the Savior. All these things. The ultimate purpose of the mother and father with the child is to train them to know and love and serve God. And if you don't do that, whatever else you do, you're an abject failure. Get your daughter into the best school. Teach your son how to hit a curveball. He gets into the major leagues. He has a great career. He hits 500 on the average. And then he dies and goes to hell. Great storyline. Whenever God's creation alters original purpose... It leads to destruction and death. You were created in his image to know him, to worship him, and to enjoy him in his presence forever and ever. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. And so for anyone to hear Jesus say, I never knew you, depart from me. Those words are truly horrific. I mean that word in its most literal sense. It's a horror. It's eternal horror. I mean, imagine. Because many will be in... Imagine. You go to church your entire life. You're baptized at a young age. You attend Bible studies. You teach Bible studies. You read your Bible. You pray. You give. You receive communion your whole life. You don't know yourself as anyone other than a Christian. Imagine that life. Imagine your whole life people have been telling you, of course you're saved. Of course you're saved. Of course you're saved. Imagine your whole life. Imagine the utter shock of then coming before Christ, expecting to be received and brought in, and he says to you, who are you? How did you get in here? This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. How'd you get in? You say, I'm a sheep. He says, no, you're a goat. I'm a sheep. He says, no, you're a goat. Imagine, there's no, there's no greater catastrophe. There's no storyline that's worse. Remember those who reject God all their life, they expect for God to cast them out. Those who know Christ expect to be received, but those who are ultimately deceived, the many, some of you are saying, I know, I know some of you are saying this is not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible for someone to go to church their whole life. It's not possible for someone to read their Bible. It's not, it's not, it is possible. Christ is saying, not only is it possible, but it's real and it's going to happen. And so what does he say to us? He's not saying run out of here, you know, crying out, sky's falling, the sky's falling. He's not saying redouble your efforts and prophesy more and cast out more demons. He's saying brutally and lovingly, examine yourself. Test yourself. Go beneath beneath the veneer and go deep and dig deep and see whether or not you are a true convert or a false convert because that's really what it comes down to. Is it a real faith or is it a said faith? Because the said faith looks the same. And of course, he's talking to us who are self-deceived. Now, if you're really going to be stubborn on this, you'll say, how can someone believe truth, work in God's name, Show great passion and zeal for their faith and not be saved. You say, how is that possible? The Bible makes it very clear. We saw it this morning. You have one hope and one hope only. And you're saved by God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that means if you put your hope or your trust in anything other than him, then you are one of these many. No matter how good it looks to you or it looks to other Christians, Christ is the only way. Your faith in Him, in His work, in His character, in His ministry, in His sacrifice, in His love, in His mercy, in His grace, in Him, in total. The Bible said it's either Jesus Christ, He's either your daily, functional Savior, daily, not just Sunday morning, or you'll put your faith in something else. It's that simple. I mean, it's really that clear. It's either Christ or something else. Did you notice in their declaration to Jesus... They say, and you can't get this worked out in the Greek, but there's almost an emphatic. They say, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Did we, did we, did we? Look at our works, Lord. I mean, they're, they're saying, Look, look at what we've done. Paul writes in Galatians 3 All who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, by faith in Christ. And so what's the consequence of those many? Those many who had deceived themselves and maybe many others. The consequence is hell. When Jesus says, depart from me, he's not just separating them temporally. He's separating them eternally. And he's casting them ultimately into a lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The consequence is eternal. Merely possessing the truth, merely engaging in good work, merely being a passionate, zealous person does not mean that you're saved. Do not be fooled. So the question is, how can you know you're saved? I mean, one of the worst things would be for you to leave here thinking, <laughs> I have no idea, right? I mean, how can you know? Can you know? Is there a way to know? Is there, can we sing a song like Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine? Can we sing that and have a blessed assurance that we know Christ and that we love Christ? My sister this morning in Bible says, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. Can you, do you know, how do you know that? How do you know that? You can be fooled, Right? I mean, how many of you have said, I know Jesus because I have, I've done great works? How many of you said, I know Jesus because I, I know truth? Or, or in our culture today, how many of you have said, I know Jesus because I'm emotional, I'm passionate? Right? I'm passionate. How do we test ourselves? Last point, we'll close. How do you know you know him? Were some of you thinking this? I pray that you were at some point going, how, how, how do I know then? Because everything you just described sounds like the perfect Christian. How do I know? Christ gives us the answer. He doesn't want you to go through life under the constant what if. What if? What if? How do I know? Maybe I'm saved. Maybe I'm not. Today, yes. Tomorrow, no. No, 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 no. He wants you to know. Better question would be, what is the essential character of a true believer, of a kingdom citizen? What is the essential character of someone who really knows Jesus Christ? Christ gives us the answer. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, the answer is there. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that person will enter. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter. That's how you know. Daily, faithful, loving, steadfast, submission and obedience to God the Father. Living a life of submission to the Father's will. This is how you know. Now, be very careful here. This is not how you get in. Right? Remember what Paul just said. All who, are, all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. This is not how you get in, but it's how you know that you are in. It's how you know that you are saved. It's how, it's how you know you know Christ and that he knows you. How? The one who does the will of my Father. Loving obedience. Loving obedience reveals that you're already in, that you already belong. No better passage than in 1 John. No better letter than 1 John to read on this topic. Go read it this week. 1 John chapter 2. John says, this is the apostle. We know that we have come to know him. Here's the answer. Past tense. We know that we've come to know him if what? If we work really hard. If we are passionate about our faith. If we cast out demons. If we are truthful in our proclamation. No. He says, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. I mean, it doesn't get any more straightforward than this, but we hate it. We hate it. I'd rather it be on the passion. I'm a very passionate person. I'd rather it be upon knowing truth because I know truth. I'd rather it be on works because I can work my tail off. But this, keeping the commands of God, John continues, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, one of the many, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. And then he says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What's your assurance? What's your blessed assurance? Are you keeping the commandments? Are you submitting to the will of God? Are you under his lordship? And is that taking place joyfully? Tragically. And I mean that. This is not the measuring stick of the contemporary church. It's not. We do not measure our assurance or our salvation or knowing him based upon a teaching like you'll keep his commandments. Today, there are lots of things that have usurped it. But I think what the biggest is, is the spiritual experience Right? Have you had the experience? What is the experience? You know the experience. The spiritual enlightenment. That time when, when, when the Holy Spirit we think comes down, we think, and does something miraculous. We think in a passionate way on us. And then we're changed. And we hang our hat on the spiritual experience. Even though we haven't had another in a long, long time. Being a good person today usurps submission to the will of the Father. Going to church... I mean, how many people today, this morning, think they're saved because they went to church? Think they're saved because they've gone to church their whole life. They give their money to the poor. They pray before they eat. Maybe that's got to mean something. They only listen to Christian music, whatever that is, right? They don't watch the bad movies that everybody else watches. They send their children to Christian schools. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about how we identify ourselves as Christians and how we place our assurance in our faith in Christ. And yet, the Bible makes it very clear. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. We are not much different from those that Christ was talking about on that day, on that mountainside to those people. I mean, how many how many professions of faith are made at a concert like venue with thousands of screaming people. How many professions are made there? How many supernatural magical formulas and prayers do we conjure up that replace repentance and biblical obedience? Having a religious spirit experience, being moved emotionally, if that is the test, then it's a lie. Because the Bible says otherwise. This cheap grace that comes through emotional experience is not what the Bible says. D.A. Carson, great quote. I'm just going to read it to you. He said, Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, and results without obedience. It's obedience to God. It's obedience to His Son. It's obedience to His laws. These are indicators That you really know Him. Not how you get in, but knowing that you are in. Knowing that you are saved. Knowing that you do know Him. That you're actually a kingdom citizen. Obedience born out of a deep love for God. Because the deep and radical love that He has displayed to you through His Son, Jesus. Obedience. Jesus Christ... Was the most orthodox man to have ever lived. He was perfectly, perfectly truthful. Even in his thoughts, perfectly orthodox. Jesus Christ, as you well know from the gospel testimonies, cast out demons. He performed many great miracles. He did many great works, many great works in the name of God. Jesus Christ was a passionate man, he was zealous. For his faith. He was zealous for his love for the Father. He was zealous for his kingdom and this kingdom calling. But none of these resulted in his resurrection from the dead or his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Not one. He said, then what was it? Obedience. Obedience. It was his obedience to his Father out of love. His perfect submission to the Father's will that resulted in his glorification. Paul says it specifically. Philippians chapter 2. Of Christ, he says, being in the very nature God, he himself, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, and became obedient. How obedient? He became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And the result of that, the Bible says, therefore... As a result of Christ's perfect submission and obedience to the Father, God did what? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was orthodox. He was passionate. He did many great works, but that did not lead to his exaltation and glorification. It was his submission and obedience to God the Father. Out of love. Not complicated. But how difficult. Jesus Christ. And I've said this so many times. I know you hate. He lived that life that we could not live. Perfect submission to the father. And then he died that death. That no one wanted to die. The consequences for our sin. And as a result of his perfect submission. He was. He was raised from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. And He sits at the right hand of the Father. And He's going to come again in glory. And He's going to judge the living and the dead. And all those that know Him, that know His power and His love, that comes through the gospel of grace, they won't hear, I never knew you, depart from me. They'll hear, come in, enter my Father's rest. Some of us will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Some, by God's grace. John chapter 14, verse 31, fantastic verse. Jesus said, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. How do you know you love the Father and the Father loves you? That you are doing what the Father commands. That you're submitting. Not to get out of the guilt, Not to get into heaven, not to put God in your debt, not to place your faith in your works, but you're submitting because of the incredible work that Christ has already done for you. You're submitting because of the love that God has displayed for you through Christ on the cross. You're submitting. You're submitting joyfully and passionately and faithfully and truthfully. And what's so extraordinary is all the things that are described, the great works, the mighty works. Jesus said, you'll do more than I did the passion, the zeal, it'll all be there. It'll all be there because Christ perfectly submitted to God the Father and then he imparts that perfect submission to you so that right now if you know Christ that God the Father sees you as a perfectly submitting son or daughter and then he calls you to live that out. He says catch up with the work the Holy Spirit's already done in your life. Catch up with it. Get on with it. Be holy as I am holy. This is how we know that we know him. If we do the will of our father who is in heaven. This is the test. This is the examination. To look below the surface. Saints, I am beseeching you in the name of Christ. Don't be self-deceived. I mean, this is the great problem with this teaching. You're talking to people who are self-deceived. And telling them not to be self deceived. That's hard. Come before Christ and say, I want to know that I know you as Lord and Savior. I want to know, I want to have that blessed assurance now and forever that I have your love and I've received your grace and that I have been forgiven. I want to know because I don't want to show up on that day thinking I'm a sheep when really I'm a goat. I'll ask you a couple questions. Do you, do you desire to know God's will? Start there. Do you desire to know it? I'm talking about his revealed will in the Bible. Do you desire to know it? Do you desire to submit to it joyfully? Yes or no? Are you? Paul said, For it is, those, it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Do you know it? Do you desire it? Are you living in accordance with it? I know that some of you might have come here for an emotional experience. Maybe for um, a spiritual high. I will not apologize for that. This is God's truth. This is what is real. Too long we've been deceived by the emotions and the hype of the said faith by the false teachers. Too long. Jesus Christ says, Know me. And if you do, you'll obey my Father. He knows that you must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows that you must have a new heart. He knows that you must have a, a consciousness of the sacrifice that he made, the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled, in order to obey. And so he will call us to the table to come and to be forgiven and to receive the grace and be empowered to live holy lives. He knows the eternal magnitude of this mistake. It is catastrophic and it is eternal. And many will be fooled. And so he says, urgently but persistently, test yourself. I've had members years ago in this church tell me that's not a biblical teaching. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Why? Because the mistake is eternal. Don't go through life assuming that you know Christ. For whatever reason, don't do it. Today, this hour, this night, open up your Bible and in prayer, examine yourself, test yourself, so that you won't be one of the many who hears Christ say, I never knew you, depart from me, worker of lawlessness. Hearing the warning of the Savior this morning, I pray that you will run to the cross. I pray that you will embrace the love and forgiveness of Christ. And I pray that you will put your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. He is our only hope. There's a reason that He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Not your works, not your passion, not your truth. Him. This sermon's not sufficient. It requires you to go back to these passages yourself. To read them, to meditate on them, to understand them deeply. If we are so arrogant that we think that we are excluded from this, that it doesn't apply to us, then we're probably already part of the many. We must humble ourselves and ask ourselves, Lord, is it me? Do I know you? It's a question that we should be testing regularly. Do I know you? Am I, do I love you? Do you love me? Am I living in accordance with your teachings? I know many of us state claims on past events and past experiences. Those claims are false. Today, test yourself. Examine yourself. So that you can have the blessed assurance that Jesus is yours. This should produce great joy and great life. And, and, and passion in the life of the person who says, I do know Jesus. And my whole faith, my whole life is on him and in him. And for those who realize that it's not, by God's grace you'll run to the cross and you'll gaze upon a crucified Christ. And you'll cry out for mercy and be healed. Sobering, I pray. Let's pray. Father, discouragement is not what you desire. Disillusionment is not what you desire. Leaving here with our heads down is not what you desire. Your son loved us and loves us so much that he speaks the truth plainly so that we can hear it now and take off the veil, to remove it now so that we won't be part of that group that is utterly shocked on that day. But we won't be people who, who try to get in based upon our works or, or think that somehow we've been sanctified because we know truth, that we're orthodox, that our doctrine is straight. Or even worse yet, Lord, that because we're emotional, passionate people that we must know Christ. It must be the Spirit of God. Dispel all of these lies, I pray, and reveal to us, Lord, that we know we know you if we keep your commandments. That our love for your son is such that we desire to obey. This is what your Bible says. Align our lives with it, I pray, by your grace and your power in his holy name.